The decision makers, however, attempt to manage these clouds of sociality according to input-output matrices, following a logic which implies that their elements are commensurable and that the whole is determinable. They allocate our lives for the growth of power. In matters of social justice and of scientific truth alike, the legitimation of that power is based on its optimizing the system's performance, efficiency. The application of this criterion to all of our games necessarily entails a certain level of terror, whether soft or hard, be operational, that is, commensurable, or disappear. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. Welcome to another edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, consider you know, typing www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H in your browser and dropping us a dollar a month for the show, support us, etc. If not, maybe leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate y'all. Taylor and I are back in the saddle for another exciting discussion on, on Leotard's The Postmodern Condition, a report on knowledge. I'm curious what, uh, <clears throat> what made you suggest this text, aside from its brevity, I guess. Well, it is shorter than it sometimes seems. It's, you know, it's, it's fairly dense. It's a nice little, little chunker. So it's a little narrative instead of a grand <laughs> narrative, my friend. Um, petit, petit narrative. What's narrative in French? Uh, récit. I mean, I'm not sure the word he uses, if he uses récit for narrative or... Um, but yeah, I mean, récit is like a story. It's a narrative. Histoire is also a story. We'd have to look at the book because he, he says in the appendix, he, he says like little narrative. Maybe they provide the French. But yeah, I think it's récit. In any case... This is one of those books I haven't read in, you know, 15, 20 years. It's one of those books that's kind of like you're expected to know the punchline, right, of postmodernity is incredulity of towards meta narratives, towards narratives, towards grand narratives. It's sometimes not. sometimes he'll talk about meta narratives and we will have to distinguish this in, at some point, but he'll also talk about grand narratives. I think it's best if you want to be safe to talk about, you know, the grand meta narratives. It's and we'll talk about why he thinks science needs narrative, which he includes in the domain of knowledge, that there is a type of knowledge, knowledge that would be narrative why science has to rely on narrative, whether it explicitly recognizes that or not, to legitimate its function as a discourse. That's the thing, right? It's like, it's like one of those 
theory 101 books, right? That's even if you don't read the book, it's like, okay, Leotard it, it provides at least two kind of provisional working definitions of postmodernism. One in the body of the text on the postmodern condition, right? That we refer to today and one in the appendix that became a part of this text that's after this text. And they're actually different if you think about, they're actually two different domains and i guess we're just jumping into it but i mean we're i'm being i'll be brief in the postmodern condition it's in a kind of an epistemological question right. about yeah how does knowledge function in this new postmodern social right system or relation set of relations right so in the epistemological framework in the body of the text it's a question of incredulity towards grand meta narratives that we no longer believe in these in these grand meta narratives of the you know the life of the spirit and the speculative unfolding of of knowledge as moments in absolute knowing in a hegelian sense or no longer believe in this discourse about the progress of the emancipatory subject right so there's a downfall, for example, of a kind of teleological, eschatological finality of time towards, let's say, the end of capitalism and, and the birth of through the revolution and whatnot. Not that I think that he doesn't necessarily think that combating capitalism is wrong or futile, although it may seem so. It's that this grand manner we tell ourselves of a kind of utopian vision of a future after the downfall of capitalism is at the very least a bit simplistic and perhaps naive. So those are two, just two of the grand meta narratives. I think he lists like three or four in the intro. Those are two of the main ones that he'll center in on. So postmodernity being a kind of incredulity, a kind of a disbelief, a lack of belief in, um, this is what he'll also elsewhere call decadence following Nietzsche. There's a decadence of the belief in the true and the belief in the unity, say, of like this, the nation state, the belief in finality, and even the belief in pedagogy in a certain extent. These meta narratives, to say the least, are held suspect. And in the, in the little uh, appendix, you know, answering the question, what is postmodernism? He wants to make sort of modernism this move whereby the unpresentable is presented yet almost nostalgically as this like missing content, right? Because for him, it's all based on this, this aesthetic of the sublime, which is a discrepancy, a gap between what is conceivable and what is imaginable or sensible. The second way, the postmodern way would be to present the unpresentable without this nostalgia to endure the pain of conceiving what is unable to be sort of presentable through the imagination or, the, or sensibility. The example he gives, again, he's moving very quickly, but he gives this, like an example of Joyce. If anyone's tried to read like Finnegan's Wake or something like that for Leotard, this is kind of like quintessential postmodern art it presents the unpresentable through the writing itself right through the signifier itself which is why it can be painful to read but at the same time you get a kind of jouissance in like hunting down what joyce is doing in that text you almost get kind of like a high like a runner's high 
if that makes any sense, that's almost like the sublime. It's like a metaphor for the sublime, right? You get that run, you get those endorphins from like punishing your body, right, you know? Yeah. So those are two quite distinct, but there are links between the two definitions of of working definitions, I would say, of postmodernism. You know, I mean, I think to be clear, though, and I think to follow his language, postmodernity would be what we're talking about today, right, for this text. I think that's I think he says postmodernity is incredulity towards meta narratives. Postmodernism would seem to be more of this question of the aesthetic based on the sublime and not on let's say like the beautiful which would be a kind of more modern take i think that if i were to be and i would have to double check even check the french to make sure i'm right i think to be um to be clear maybe he doesn't provide two definitions of postmodernism but a definition of postmodernity and a definition of postmodernism and we would need to distinguish between the two one would be the aesthetic category that I just mentioned, and the other would be this question of a of an age of, let's say, whether it be the the rules of language games or an epistemological age or whatever brought about by the the two world wars and the defeat of what does he say the post post Keynesian post Keynesian like renewal of capitalism blah blah blah. He's very sketchy on like the historical factors, but we can we can locate it after World War II, right? So, at the time that he's writing this book, 1979, you know, it's I think that we're well within that era. And one of the big factors he points to, which may or may not be a part of the historical period, is the computerization, informatization of society, knowledge, the storage of knowledge, and databanks. Who owns the databanks? Right. One of the last things he calls for in that last paragraph is kind of like if we want to prevent the kind of terror that can come from computerizing society down to the finest details and rigidifying consensus as the norm and thereby instituting a type of technological terror, the databanks should be open and free. You know, you can imagine Leotar would be someone pretty keen on piracy, knowledge piracy, like book downloading from Libgen, ARG, Sci-Hub, these kinds of things, that paywalls to information would probably be anathema to this call for, yeah. for open access. That was just a general sketch, but I think that that provides a nice, I guess I only answered your question in a, in a shitty way, but <laughs> my main thing was that it's just a basic, it's like grad school theory 101 text, intro to theory class, you know, um, happy hour. I thought we would revisit this to maybe talk a little bit about and see if we can, um, I won't say deepen, but but at least go into a little bit about maybe scratch the surface beyond this incredulity towards meta narratives, right? Whether in the Hegelian variant or the emancipatory, liberatory variant. His context was different, but in the introduction that in the preface that Frederick Jameson wrote for the English translation, he mentions Foucault's history of sexuality and this ambivalence. He calls it a, this passionate ambivalence towards the um, narrative of sexual liberation. And I think that there is something I would draw resonances between that wariness towards discourses about sexual liberation 
and whether or not that that sort of like just lifts repression and everyone's free now, right? To sort of what Leotard is trying to diagnose in the downfall of the grand mariner narrative of say the revolutionary subject emancipating itself at the end of history or at the end of capitalism and whether or not in the end i think his main concern is if the crisis of of truth's ability or science's ability as he puts it to legitimate its own discourse doesn't have these reverberating effects with say the ability for prescriptive statements about the just and the good the ethical practical statements that language game being able to ground itself on knowledge thereby it becomes this 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 kind of cascading effect right so i could have said that better but i i didn't want to like unpack all of that just yet i want there to be a little bit of like opacity here for us to mm -hmm. unpack but i'll take a breath and maybe let you answer your own question why you think because you've read this before and uh so I just wanted to maybe maybe give your reactions to coming back to it again and justifying why we're we're talking about it. If I can reverse the question, I mean I think Leotard was incredibly prescient in this text. My appreciation and understanding of how that, like I think when I first read it, I was sort of in agreement, but now I understand more intimately the why the why he or the how he was correct i have a more sophisticated appreciation for the argumentation and what he's really driving towards in a way that i obviously just didn't have the context for when i read this in like 2000 whatever like five or six seven somewhere uh, in there. yeah that will probably been around the time when i read it as well maybe a little bit earlier but could have been too much more I agree with you. You know, when I when I first read it, when I was first exposed to this, you're kind of like bombarded with the Norton anthology of theory and criticism. It's like, you know, this 2000 page Bible. And it's like, well, here, read a snippet from here or there. And I believe I believe it would have included sections from this. I'd have to look at my volume, which was the second edition, which I'm not making fun of that book. I recommend it mm -hmm. to people. It's a great book for sources for sort of slices i you know whether or not you would call it a theory canon is perhaps too strong but it, it does give you a kind of good <laughs> sense of what at least in the humanities is cachet right i mean because leotard will talk about this one of the aspects of the shift from modernity to post-modernity is how sort of knowledge as the discourse of the true becomes less and less about this this use value even if it still retains it to a certain extent and more towards the side of an exchange commodity where information becomes saleable and this dialectic he sees justifying why Marx thinks of science as directly implicated and participating in and as a force of production. This is towards the end of the book when he's talking about which research projects get funded if they can justify their ability to, you know, sort of produce effects, their efficiency, their their ability to uh, increase productivity and blah, 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 right? Like if you are able to 
justify your research in the name of the technological language game, which he says doesn't operate like the scientific one, which is based on truth, or the practical one, which is based on justice, or the aesthetic one, which we brought up momentarily based on the beautiful and sublime, but on this criteria of efficiency, optimization. That's the research that gets funded. And a little bit of the surplus value extracted from that is left over to research new projects in this way, like snowballing research as a kind of, as a kind of capital form of thought, as Laurel has talked about <laughs> before, but as, as a force of production in the extraction of surplus value. I wanted to knock that out real quick so we don't have to talk about that later, but we might bring it back up in the context of these various language games. But I'm glad you did enjoy this. And I will say, before we actually like start talking about it, because we have done Leotard before. Well, two things. One, uh, you know, we had done Leotard before. We have the series on libidinal economy, which what would have been written five years prior in 74. Yeah. So there's five years. Sometimes the era of the 70s, Leotard has, and I, I want to find the interview where he says it. I've talked to some colleagues about this, but where he talks about it as, as his evil period where he makes retractions and things like this, right? I've translated a piece from that, which I've shared with you a long time ago. The, the piece, I just call it the decadence essay. It's, it's got a weird title. You know, this question of decadence and crisis and, and the downfall of the values of truth, unity, finality, that kind of shit that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I think all of that does feed into this book. But, you know, libidinal economy is one of those texts where it's in a hazy state of of disavowal, at least later in life. I guess I wanted to talk to you or at least get your reaction about now that you've revisited it, the difference in the tone, the mood, the clarity, the style of this work, which at least he indicates he wrote it sort of for a, you know, for a Quebecois kind of committee as a literal quote unquote report on knowledge. So it's almost interesting that he's indicating a, a beforehand, he's writing it kind of for a state institute, just to contextualize a little bit. It's a bit ironic, yes. Yeah. What's your feelings about this Leotard versus like the evil Leotard of, of a little economy? I mean, he still has some bangers. Obviously, the style is not so quite as acceleratory or inflammatory or relentlessly libidinally charged, but he's got some bangers. I mean, whenever he said that bit about God, there was one part where I just I, I literally was like, ah, and I think, oh, it was the line about knowledge loses its what is it knowledge ceases to be an end in itself it loses its use value when i read that i audibly was like ah you know he's still a great writer i think and uh you know he toned it down a bit for this could have been audience driven i'm sure but i mean we've also looked at what uh we didn't record on it but i mean i started reading what is the it? different Not, the different which was yeah we started reading fucking, the different that was the driest shit ever <laughs> at a had a hard time with that one. This was good. I still think the different is probably one of his probably one of his most important books. So eventually we should return yeah. to it. You know, I think we, I just need more exposure to Kant. And we like, gave you uh, we did do a little more Kant. We right? a little bit, but I I still need like still need you need I still you, need more. You need a critique of your might have to do the groundwork. 
at some point the I think. groundwork yeah the critique i mean I, doing the whole critique man that's a that's like a year yeah that would be brutal project but but maybe we can get some good some of the best secondary lit or something. yeah well what to think about what the thing about delving into more like con. figure out maybe there's chapters or i don't know I do because think yeah, there, dude, Kant fucking sucks to read. I mean, I, I do think <laughs> that you don't need that much Kant to do to do the different, but but we'll I'll have to see. I'll have to think about how we could approach that text in the future and when we can put it off for a little bit. Ironically, in French, you know, the word differe is to defer and to, <laughs> and to differ. So we'll literally it'll be a it'll be a different, it'll be deferred. In any case. You know, I remember this text and, and I didn't see it in this text. So Leotar must say it elsewhere. But I've said this to you. And so I should have been or I would have been misremembering when thinking about this text, although I think it's related, is where, you know, he does pose this question of imagine databanks, all the information that humanity has accumulated being stored in these databanks in satellites, which now we could say like the cloud. Like who owns the cloud, which state has has access to it or controls it? Or really, he says, would they not be just mere users in line to multinational corporations? And so what I like about that question is that it reminds me of a question that really I think Marx brings up uh, and formulates. But I'm going to formulate in my own in my own way, because I think that Leotard himself has talked about this, where it's like, look, and this might be a part of post-modernity or whatever, but with the downfall of the nations, they are at least the crisis of the legitimacy of, of sovereignty, which is concomitant with, with this crisis of knowledge. It's like, well, capital doesn't really care about national borders, right? It doesn't care what, what form of currency it's in. So with the rise of multinational corporations and with this question of, the computerization of society, you know, informatics, the data banks being offshored, who owns the knowledge, blah, blah, blah. We could say the same thing where it's like information doesn't care which language it's in, which or it doesn't care about nation states either. It becomes this is why knowledge becomes more of an exchange commodity, very much like capital. So it doesn't give a shit about national borders, doesn't care about your, your ethno-nationalism. So there is a sense in which there is a direct political correlation to what Leotar is bringing in the focus with this question of capital information being multinational, or we could say in the same way, a national. It's indifferent to nationality. Doesn't matter if it's in euros or, or dollars or whatever. So that kind of shows at least to a certain extent how in the same way that science brings about through its fidelity to its procedures of we could think of even beginning with Descartes if not before of radical doubt it brings about its own crisis in questioning its foundations capital too this is why capital is always in crisis because it brings about and not only sort of um dissolves nation states, family, communities, the values that gave rise to it, but also has to, you know, re-elaborate new ones and throw those into, into crisis, right? So it's, it's perpetually undermining an essential element of what made it possible. 
And I think that's the same for science. And I think that this is why Leotard later turns to sort of Nietzsche and this question of European nihilism to chart this development. But we could take a step back and maybe start with follow a little bit of the line of Leotard's arguments before we jump around. I know a lot of times we like to just jump around and that's fun, <laughs> but we could talk a little bit, set some of these things out more clearly. We don't have to even define too many terms before going into the weeds. I mean, one of the things that I brought up was how, you know, for Leotard, let's talk about a few distinctions. For, so one of the things that Leotard wants to say is we can at least talk about these language games, which is a phrase that he inherits from Wittgenstein. To each discourse, there would be a type of language game, right? Where mm -hmm. there would be, we could start with the language game of science, since this is a report on knowledge. And to a certain extent, one of the key aspects of the language game of science would be based on the order of what Leotard calls the denotative, which is just a typical kind of linguistic form of what we might think of basically as the declarative sentence, right? The earth revolves around the sun, which would be a kind of Copernican denotative statement, which at the time was highly politically charged, right? So denotatives can be full of intensity. They're not as boring as they may seem to be, right? Because that was a new, what Leotard would call a new move in the language game of science dominated by an Aristotelian Ptolemaic view of and catholic because it's an ideological view of the universe and man's place within it and even though Copernicus wasn't the first to make this move we have what is it aristarchus of the greeks you know who already had kind of measured the diameter of the earth and already put forward and there's is it eratosthenes my greek history is a little there's at least like two or three famous greeks who put forward a heliocentric theory but at the time that Copernicus is stating this in the 16th century, right, it's those would have been rare, if not repressed or forgotten moves. In any case, so if science is the discourse of the true, its way of its mode of argumentation is based on the putting forth of denotatives, right? These denotative statements. The earth revolves around the sun, water is composed of, you know, or, you know, ether is not a viable substance, whatever, you know, like, and really for Leotard, the rules of the game, you know, are bound by a kind of consensus of a community of scientists. It involves a kind of didactics and a pedagogy, right? Because you make new scientists by making new players by, uh, transmitting the form of argumentation which is based on observability verification experimental repeatability all the stuff that we kind of fall under the the heading of the scientific method and things like that right i'll go into consensus in a minute but those aren't the only um language games that leotard brings up there's also the prescriptive language game right where the prescription presupposes the authority of the speaker, right? So I, we can imagine categorical imperatives 
as functioning under this ethical, practical, prescriptive mode. And what's what's fascinating about the categorical imperative is that for Kant, insofar as ideally rational subjects, insofar as we are all legislators and legislating this imperative, this prescriptive, because we are rational as legislators, we are also those we're legislating for ourselves, right? So we take on the categorical paradigm. We sort of prescribe ourselves. But normally, prescriptives in the general sense, you have a speaker and an addressee. We can give commands, as we've seen with Deleuze and Guattari and Wittgenstein, even in the philosophical investigations. The order word is like the basis of, of how language works, right? It, it, it works by giving orders. But in any case, in this example, prescriptions for Leotard, as he generalizes, would not necessarily be on the order of science because prescriptions are kind of like what should be done rather than what the discourse of what is, the discourse of ontology, or even what is possible versus what is ethical, practical, pragmatic, what should be done, not necessarily what can I know, you know, as Kant lays out the three questions, right? What I what can I know? What ought I to do? What should I do? And, and what can I hope for? Those are all language games to a certain extent, the three critiques, if you want to like say that. But then there's also the performative, which we've talked about a little bit. This is taken up from Austin's How to Do Things with Words. And what's interesting about the performative is it's in the very act of saying that the activity is carried out, right? The judge says, you're guilty. If he said that in the bedroom with a prostitute, that would be its own language game. But if he says that in the courtroom under conditions with a jury and a prosecutor and yada, 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 and the whole apparatus of law, that takes on the activity of a, the language game of performative. What's interesting about the performative is that its efficiency is what constitutes the authority of the speaker rather than the other way around. I think this is the interesting way that Leonard puts it, right? It's like in the prescriptive, the prescriptive presupposes the authority of the speaker. The speaker has authority to give commands, right? The master, the boss, the president, whatever. But it's in the performative. It's actually the performative that and its, its ability to function in a given context, as I mentioned, like a juridical context, you know, or like a priest at a wedding saying, I now pronounce you man and wife, blah, blah, blah. For Leotard, it's the efficiency, it's the, the performance's ability to create reality that constitutes the authority of the speaker, not the other way around, as in the prescriptive. I only brought those up because those are sort of three of the examples, but I really liked the way that he did that, especially distinguishing the performative and the prescriptive based on the authority of language of the speaker and where, if that is presupposed, in the speaker's status, or if instead the status is conferred by the language game and the rules of the language game itself. I thought that that was an interesting thing. Now, sadly, we won't hear too much more about performatives throughout the rest of the text, but those are kind of like three examples he gives of language games. Later, we'll hear about the technological language game, the language game of efficiency and optimization, which I mentioned briefly earlier. So we can already consider there four. He mentions the questioning language game, which he says at the end of the book, this is something 
I think with the incredulity towards meta narratives implied in postmodernity for Leotard, part of education, part of learning, part of future education, and part of the impetus in science to be wary of sort of consolidating around a type of consistence that would preclude future inventions is to cultivate new forms of the language game of interrogation, of self-interrogation. And, and by self, I, I don't mean necessarily our individual ideologies, but the, you know, the whole discourse is interrogation. So new, ever vigilant, like language games of questioning, I think too would be a kind of, I don't know if you, I would say it's an ethical prescription on Leotard's part, but it's a, it's a suggestion at the very least. So those are like at least five language games that I just brought up, but there's others like he mentions the evaluative, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll pause there just so we can maybe talk a little bit about that and make sure that what I said was clear, at least if not ordered. So I don't have too much to add there, to be honest. I mentioned terror earlier. And, and again, I am kind of doing a, a diachronic thing, but when Leotard brings up terror at the end, and of course he's, one could think of a big terror, like whether it be the French Revolution and the aftermath of that. One could think of Stalinism, which is an aside example he gives, because he will relate terror to a type of totalitarian regime. But if we imagine language games as having players with moves, for example, in the denotative language game of science, scientists can make new moves that may, that the only criterion of which is to provide proof in argumentation, which is a multi-layered thing. We'll get to the other layers soon. But the main thing would be you play the game by providing proof. For Leotard, language games are always amongst players and are always agonistic, right? Because whether or not we consider those enemies, there are always counter moves in the... Um, that are implied and I, mean, I, yeah. I think it's due to absolute contingency means that since all needs or wants can't be met or all outcomes can't be reached that necessitates by definition we have to have we have conflict right this is what he calls agonistics right right exactly. that this is one of the reasons we can start laying out a bunch of them this is one of the reasons why habermas is one of the main targets in this book, right? Because for Habermas, there's almost this platonic Socratic ideal of a society of individuals in which consensus is reached through discussion that is kind of clear and transparent and avoids rhetoric, seduction, persuasion, quote unquote, in the sophistic sense. This is why Leotard, just to anticipate again, throwing all of these things out there on the wall just to show our trajectories. This is why Leotard will kind of posit that it's actually consensus that is the death knell of the inventiveness of discourses. And here specifically, science as right. a language game. And so he will call for the cultivation of dissensus or dissension. In any case, like the problematic, yeah. the, it's like the problematic is kind of has some resonance there, right? Because it's the it's the problems that we encounter that yes, spurs to think or 
right it's the conflict between our wants and needs and another group or person or etc or i may not want the sun to come up tomorrow but there's going to be a <laughs> you know what I mean? i'm kind of stuck if that makes sense well it's always possible right? that that today it's is the possible day. right but Things but would have to be improbable, improbable. The, the right conditions of the totality of possibility would have to be met for that to be a possible. So I was mentioning terror. So terror would consist in, and I've kind of already outlined it, but would consist in this imposition of a type of consensus whereby speakers, movers in the game, players in the game would be excluded based on their ascension either you agree to the consensus, the state of knowledge, for example, or because there's two ways to invent for Leotard. You either make a new move, right? A new statement, for example, mm -hmm. the earth revolves around the sun. Even if that was the resurrection of an old move, it was a novel move, let's say, for Copernicus. Or you can change the rules of the game. You can modify the rules of the game. And whether or not, depending on the statement, depending on the move, it may be harder to to make a new move in the game. For example, Copernicus threatened with not only excommunication, but execution by the church. Or it may be, in general, harder to change the rules of the game and still find players for the game, right? So, but in any case, those are two ways of invention in, in different modes of, of language games. But, you know, one of the examples I was thinking of, and I, I did some, some sleuthing, is Zimmelweis. You may recall my favorite movie is 12 Monkeys. I've told you about this. You know, Brad Pitt has that great, he has a couple of great monologues, but he has that monologue when he first meets up with Bruce Willis in the movie. And, you know, he's talking about Zimmelweis and, and these, these tiny little, little germs that are infecting everyone, right? And how he was considered crazy. And in fact, he was thrown into an, he had a breakdown and was thrown into an institution because he was, he was mocked and, um, excluded by the community and disregarded and misunderstood and all these things it has been argued that he could have done a better job not poking the bear so to speak not like talking shit about the medical establishment and these other things and could have presented his ideas more clearly yada yada sure but in any case you know his ideas were met with great resistance and misunderstood right because it was misunderstood that he was merely claiming that diseases were communicable as though that were that novel of an idea, but his idea of washing hands specifically with a kind of like, I forget what it was called. It was some kind of like chlorine compound, you know, was met with resistance. So he was excluded from the language game. And, and in fact, there is a, there's something called the Zimmelweis reflex, which I'd never heard of. I learned something today named after him, obviously where, you have a knee-jerk reaction or the community or the language game, let's say, or the whatever, the discursive community has a knee-jerk reaction or it could be an individual reaction to considering the possibility of a new, let's say, a new move in the language game, a new hypothesis or theory or, or whatever. You have a knee-jerk reaction based on the commonsensical, the state of opinion, which is what Leotard will reduce consensus to, going back to philosophies one of philosophy's first enemies let's just call it orthodoxy there's a there's a knee-jerk reaction against unconventional unprecedented statements hypotheses theories based on the current state of knowledge the consensus the opinion the orthodox 
view of things. I thought that was kind of an interesting idea of a Zimmelweiss reflex where, you know, and I suppose that would be a good weapon in any conspiracy theorist's arsenal. Well, you're just having a Zimmelweiss reflex. So I think that that's the irony of, in my opinion, Leotard's, and I'm going to go back to Habermas for a second, barrage against Habermas because it's, it's intermittent, but it's pretty brutal throughout the text. I mean, he could have been more polemical if he were Baudrillard or something. He could have been <laughs> a little bit nastier. He's not really, no ad hominem, sadly, but that's okay. If Habermas is ideally painting this picture in which consensus can be reached through clear and concise, friendly discussion with open and transparent rules, no persuasion, no seduction, no sophistry. It's ironic that Leotard turns the tables on him and shows that that actually reduces down to doxa, to opinion. If we go back to Plato and Socrates, if the main enemy of philosophy is, is sophistics and sophists, sophistry, making the weak argument, the strong argument, blah, 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 not wagering on truth like philosophy does. Opinion is no less so an enemy. Doxa is no less an enemy of philosophy. And Deleuze and Guattari are really good about this in What is Philosophy, where it's like, look, all we want is a little bit of respite from chaos in order to lay out the planes of eminence, right? Lay out, lay out these planes of composition you know, for art, science, philosophy. And this is why opinion is so seductive, right? Because it can allow us to fall back on a safe, I was going to say a safe space, but that seems parodic, a little comfort, a little respite, you know, a little refuge from, from the chaos. And that's why it's so insidious because it allows us to rest on our laurels or something like that, right? It allows us to, uh, to believe we have some kind of solid foundation and thereby begin to not question it. We begin to regenify a kind of consensus wherein you're only allowed into the language game if you abide by the fundamental rule of accepting this foundation as principle. That is a part, that's just an example, I think, of what Leotard means by terror this means of excluding players to demanding their assent to one or several, one or even all, but at least one or several um, rule, well, rules isn't, moves, predetermined moves, predetermined structures. I don't know the word for it. He's, you either agree or you're excluded. At the limit, it's, your consent or your life, you know, to like think of the Hegelian master slave narrative, right? Your, your freedom or your life. It's something, something similar is going on here, I think. And, and what Leotard will say is that terror is to be avoided in this kind of theory of language games. Well, I mean, not just for the reasons that I, you know, laid out that, Terror by itself, you know, we could say is bad, I suppose, unless you're the, the terrorist, right? But I think for him, language games, even the questioning of language games, right? Even the questioning of the legitimacy of a certain language game 
language games for him are like at bottom one of the fundamental weaves of the social fabric of the social relation right and terror would be that which fundamentally cuts and severs the social bond so it would put an end to the flourishing of the heterogeneity of language games and i think in that sense it would conflict with whatever we want to deem as as progress or invention or creativity it would try to regularize and standardize language games to an extent to which there would be an ultimate language game to an extent which we sometimes find in the technological language game as he puts it because it would then reduce everything to power and for leotard i think there's a heterogeneity a multiplicity of language games that can't be hierarchized or unified in one single language game like might have been the dream of a classical metaphysics or something like this as the queen of the sciences or or the speculative meta narrative, right? Of the sciences as moments in absolute knowing, blah, 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 right? There would be this hierarchy introduced and a kind of closing off of the system, which again, I think Leotard would kind of say terror. I'm just extrapolating a little bit, but it seems to be pretty clear that terror would be a way of totalizing, because it is totalitarian for him, but it'd be a way of totalizing a system of language games, hierarchizing them, excluding moves, excluding players, excluding creativity and invention, and thereby sort of instituting and reinstituting a grand meta narrative. It'd be imposing a, a meta narrative, which would itself be contradictory. For example, we can think of, you know, I think that when the Atari talks about Stalinism, he's thinking about how Stalinism comes into this era of being a reinforcing catalyst of the emancipatory meta narrative of the revolutionary subject it's ironic that it uses terror as its means to achieve the end of revolutionary freedom and i think that that's why that's another reason why outside of just the ethical implications but if we want to call it like an ethics of of language games then we could say that's why terror is bad <laughs> in this context. Repost? I don't have much to add as far as, as terror is concerned, I suppose. My questions would be more directed towards like the very beginning of the book. My first question, he makes this definition of the postmodern, and then he follows it up with this very interesting quote that I couldn't quite grasp or fully but it sounds very interesting and i think it may go towards the aspect of science you mentioned earlier where it kind of negates its own it sort of negates its own authority in a way by working in this sort of negative through negation of its own quote-unquote truths and i'll read just the quote so you can get context here simplifying to the extreme i define postmodern as incredulity incredulity towards meta-narratives. This incredulity is undoubtedly a product of progress in the sciences, but that progress in turn presupposes it. Right. So this is 
similar to what we discussed. Gosh, it's maybe it's been a few weeks. We discussed this just as an example, an analogy. We discussed this in Nietzsche talking about the death of God, and it's it's the very desire for truth in in Christianity and the and the concomitant philosophies that come in its wake to desire for truth that it ends up putting the lie to God. So in the same way, and again, Descartes is just a prime example. He's an easy one. And Leotard does call on him a couple of times in the class. You know, incredulity, doubt, methodological doubt, we could even say, is a product of the progress in the sciences, right? It's, we could say that, you know, for Descartes, it's not the language of truth per se, at least unless we think about it, truth is adequation, which we can, but it's certainty that Descartes wants to nail down. It's through methodological doubt, doubting everything that I can come to realize in the activity of doubting, I am thinking in the activity of thinking I am. Ruye says you could just as well have said I am cooking, therefore I am right because I am working towards a goal but in any case it's in but there this was nothing outside the text right I mean <laughs> so so in this movement I am nailing down certainty and I'm finding this this certainty in the fact that God is not a deceiver so there is a transcendent sort of anchor for this movement but you know Leotard transfers this to nature wherein like later he'll talk in the book he'll talk about you know, one of the questions of science is if it's moves, if the other player in the, in the game is nature, right? And nature is like, nature is not necessarily loading the dice, right? It's not like, a, say, a human in the human sciences, at least the natural sciences with nature, although obviously quantum mechanics and microphysics throws some unpredictability, undecidability into the mix. That's a part of nature itself and not necessarily a way of deceiving and cheating. So in any case, so incredulity, methodological doubt is a part of this progress in the sciences and their ability to legitimate itself and find a, a first, a, a primal foundation. And um, so I think for him, it's just that it's it takes science a certain amount of progress to reach the point where it can find a way whether it succeeds or not succeeds or not just the fact that it has this thought experiment where it can eliminate or find ways of eliminating or criticizing itself and its pseudoscientific accompaniments right so but that doubt itself promotes progress in the sciences right so it takes a certain amount of science a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? As Alexander Pope said. So it, it takes a it takes a lot more to get to the point where we're doubting um, science's foundations, its legitimacy. But that doubt itself, even at the price of crisis of the foundation of the sciences, can spur progress along. And I think this is why Leotard is calling for a renewed discourse or a new language game of interrogation where we become wary of not necessarily just the meta narratives which are at the found at the beginning of the text but at what he calls like these meta prescriptives later at the very end of the text which 
you know, Leotar has said this in different ways, like where science is, is not the scientists in science, or at least like the veritable scientists for him aren't necessarily asking like, what's just, what's the value of my research, which can always be put to capitalist consumption ends or ethical ends of, you know, feeding millions of people, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it can always take these different forms, but also like, what is it exactly that we do as scientists? There is this question of, of radical doubt, not just being a product of progress in, in the sciences, but promoting the progress in the sciences. Because radical doubt would, at least provisionally, have allowed for the scientific community, untethered by, say, the Catholic Church in its political and humanistic vision of the of man as the center of the universe, blah, blah, blah. It would have maybe allowed Copernicus more free reign to promulgate his, his ideas. It would have perhaps garnered Zimmelweis a little bit more, I'm not saying trust but his his ideas could have been said okay let's let's test and verify rather than um dismiss out of hand right so ironically i think the symbol vice reflex is like that at certain states of knowledge doubt is not administered to oneself or to one's own presuppositions so that's where is that like who who proves the proof or how do you prove a proof you're anticipating, and I like this. I mean, I also think that this is where perhaps the fundamental difference between Hegel and Deleuze would be is that I think Deleuze, if I'm understanding correctly, would believe in sort of a positive knowledge versus the neg- the negation of of Hegel, the undermining the like the negation of like science contains its own negation within itself, or democracy contains its own negation within itself. Right? How does how does a thing become its opposite? Or with Deleuze, it's it's all very tricky, right? Because positive knowledge can mean a million things at the very least, because it could be conflated with positivist knowledge, which would be, you know, a kind of well, maybe a positive method, a positive methodology, not positivism, but right, right, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's interesting on those questions, you know, which we'd have to revisit where you know the the movement of knowledge for Deleuze would be secondary to the positive movement of learning and what that entails and how that's linked to problematics like you, yeah. you mentioned it's less propositionally dialectic in the basic sense mm-hmm. and less secure in this movement of moments in the spiral of negations leading to absolute knowing. That's a question for getting more um, Deleuzeans and Hegelians on the show to discuss. (laughs) But you did anticipate something really good where science needs science. Okay, this reminds me of, since you brought up Deleuze, this reminds me of what Deleuze says in The Logic of Sense that I think also applies to things like Bertrand Russell's, you know, classes of, whereby you know there is no set of all sets because the set can't belong it can't be a member of its own set where the sense of a proposition cannot state its own sense a proposition cannot state its own sense you need you need another proposition to state the sense of the first proposition ad infinitum and Liz follows this through like 
Lewis Carroll's works and shows it very brilliantly. But the only thing that for Deleuze that can say its own sense is nonsense. And so I think that for Leotar, we can see the same thing when the language game of science, the discourse of science, broadly speaking, even in the totality of all the statements, it needs another language game in order to legitimate its operation of, you know, proof by argumentation, proof by evidence, proof by observability, repeatability, whatever, the scientific method, quote unquote, right? This is why you said, what is the value of your proof is another language game than the scientific one. And even to the point where Leotar, you know, can turn this around and he does this at the end of the text where he's, he's saying, you know, this could go on. I suppose at infinitum, but he at least says just as valid as this question of what is the proof of what is your proof worth worth? What is the worth of your, your questioning of, of what is the worth of your proof worth, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the incredulity towards Zimmelweis, the Zimmelweis reflex to this, which to be fair, Zimmelweis, it took till Lister, what, 20, 30 years later to kind of experimentally and theoretically give more found more more proof and rigor to what Zimmelweis was was putting forth about washing hands to prevent childhood births but what is the resistance to this new move in a language game worth what is your resistance worth which might be something that like our interest in psychoanalysis that might perk your your ears up right with freud you know what is what is your negation your no worth when you say no well you know you, i know you're thinking it's my mother but it's not my mother what is that negation worth in the freudian sense we can imagine and this is what jameson wants to try to do with uh his little intro to this book where he's he's like well you know the maybe the downfall of the grand metanarrives is actually they're going subterranean into the unconscious and it's really the political conscious by the way i have a book called that you know it's like come on <laughs> like all right fair whatever <laughs> you know i remember when i first read jameson's intro to this book i was taken by it but rereading it for our discussion i was like man you got some points but you're rambling you're i mean like i'm the only one allowed to ramble i mean i don't know about you <laughs> Anyway, um, so science needs another discourse to um, to ground it, its legitimacy. I mean, you can think of, for example, like, I mean, this is why Kant, I mentioned it before, says the metaph metaphysics is the queen of the sciences. This is a grand meta narrative. This is a this is a philosophical pretension. Heidegger wants to say that. The regional sciences need a, a fundamental science, let's call it ontology, to give it a foundation, you know, in the questioning of being, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Again, another philosophical pretension, a way of unifying or founding language games in a single discourse, here philosophy. And I think this is where Leotard and Laura Well could be in great dialogue about what non-philosophy is trying to point out about what philosophy is doing one of its moves one of its primary moves but one of its moves is trying to is this war 
amongst philosophers of like who will lead the sciences into the promised land of of a unified discourse right and in that sense you know it's Laura Well is is fighting terror and totalitarianism to a certain extent on on philosophical grounds or a, against the philosophical so this is why Leotard will distinguish between or at least admit that narrative is a form of knowledge and he'll distinguish two kinds of knowledge French has two words for knowledge it's all very it becomes very very frustrating to try to translate these words German has two words for knowledge too that Kant uses and and so there's a similarity there in English it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit strange so in like in French you got savoir you got connaissance in this book and it doesn't show up too much but they translate connaissance roughly as learning and I think that that's generally not a good translation except in except when you have to immediately juxtapose it with savoir and savoir they just translate strictly as knowledge and that's the word in the title of this book right the postponer condition a report on savoir right um savoir if, if learning if connaissance learning is this is roughly reduced to the acceptance let's say and transmission of denotative statements like the earth revolves around the sun that is accepted as a denotative scientific statement. It more or less accords with the reality of the referent, with the state of affairs of things. Savoir would be something different. And we, ha we have in English, Leotard gives a few of these, but the one in English that we at least have is savoir-faire, which is like know-how. Because savoir can be in its phrasing in French can be know how to infinitive do something. So savoir faire, know how to do, to know to do, if you want to just like reduce it. So savoir faire, is it, and even in um, Greek, and I'm trying to remember the word for it in Greek, but even Socrates will distinguish opinion from knowledge where opinion at best can attain the state of savoir faire, right? Because he goes, See all these different people at their jobs, like the shipbuilder, and ask about the essence of shipbuilding. And you know, he goes to the, you know, he goes to the priest and asks about the essence of of piety. Blah blah blah. Right? Like all of these people he's interrogating, these tradespersons, they have a know how, but do they really know? Insofar as they can't transmit the dis they can't play the language game in which they can reach the essence of the form of the thing itself which is why socrates is so fucking like i think Nietzsche like calls him like a gadfly right he's just like he's constantly just berating these people about what they're supposed to be experts in so there's this difference even in platonic dialogues of like expertise know-how and true knowledge in the sense of transmissibility here i think the revolves are a little bit reversed because i think that if connaissance is that transmissibility of denotative statements and learning which we can acquire by reading wikipedia or googling or something like this which you know if you saw at the end when leotard talks about you know how computerization of society and the access to databanks and the training and learning of, of manipulating interrogative 
discourses, to ask the right questions, to search the databanks. And he says that that's become human nature. We can think about how the means to acquire knowledge is like second nature is like Googling now, right? But in any case, know how, he also says, uh, know how, was it no, no hear or no listen and no, no speak. There's a know how, there's a no speak and a no listen. We know how to we have a know-how when we become competent speakers and listeners in a language game. We're able to function and play in the language game as senders and addressees of moves in the language game. Does that make sense? And so I think that we should distinguish between connaissance as mere learning and sort of the reception and transmission of the communication of messages and information versus competence. That's kind of what savoir gets reduced to. If we want to reduce these different forms of savoir to competence, at least on the, on the, on behalf of the players, because I think knowledge in general, savoir in general is also its own thing. But in terms of the players and following the rules of the game, making moves in the game, and even maybe reinstituting rules and reshuffling them, that comes down to a certain competence because it becomes this question of making good moves, which he always or usually puts in scare quotes. It's this question of making good moves that becomes a question of participating in certain games. Because not every game is about winning. Not every language game is about winning, as, as Leotar says. It's not always about beating your opponent because there are some games we're in the moves themselves generate a certain delight, a certain pleasure, a certain fun. He gives a couple examples of this, art being one of them, but also the way that friends interact, which is never in one in the same language game. It's always kind of, kind of like sifting and cycling through various language games that in many cases have nothing to do with winning an argument, for example making a good move in, in the sense of a debate club, but in the sense in which there is a jouissance in the, in the very movement, the trajectory of cycling through language games and, uh, and even playing on the rules themselves. I mean, like your use of like of bad puns, right. Or my use of dad bad jokes, puns. <laughs> bad puns. Yeah. Bad puns are never punished. <laughs> not enough, at least. Oh, not enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But in any case, you know, I think for him, he says something interesting. And uh, this is to finish that line of thought. One doesn't necessarily play to win, but also to invent. And to invent implies at least one adversary. And he mentions conventional accepted language, which he also calls connotation. But I think that a, a conventional accepted language, we could think of poetics could be a kind of, in the broad sense, could be a kind of language game wherein there is a, I mean, we kind of got into some of this with the distinction between the semiotic and the um, and the signifying. But we can think again, like this could also be applied to the state of convention itself, the state of opinion itself. Wherein it is the consolidated opinion itself, consensus itself, that becomes the adversary and the obstacle for invention and creativity so i think that even if narrative 
as a type of knowledge can accommodate science in its form of language game science itself can't do it can't go the other way around science itself has a duty as we mentioned with the cartesian move of mythological doubt blah 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 to hold narrative suspect so there is a kind of interesting dissymmetry between science's need for a narrative of what we are doing when we do science to legitimate itself to legitimate knowledge and at the same time you can think about like the validity of anecdotal evidence whether it be in juridical inquiry or scientific inquiry and how it is held suspect and how it cannot pass the test of being knowledge without some sort of interrogation. So this is the kind of paradox that Leotard kind of calls for at the end of the book when he calls for little narratives that are local situations, not these grand meta narratives that are universalist in, in appeal. One can think of one persisting grand meta narrative in science itself, which would be like the grand unified theory of, of one equation to explain all equations, right? To, to explain the universe. That to me has always seemed like a kind of, obviously like a grand meta narrative. It's, it's in the fucking name, grand unified theory. You know, I was thinking about that after we had that discussion, was it Sayre or the, what did we read after? Oh, it was, uh, it was Rue. So yeah. I can't remember if it was Rue or Sayre that was like, saying you can't start at the top and work your way way to the bottom and you can't start at the bottom and work your way to the top which is similar to this like disjunction between quantum physics and general relativity you can start at the very sm infinitesimally small and try to build your system that way to the cosmos and it won't it won't work or vice versa right yeah i think that i think that sounds like sarah that sounds a lot like Sayre, although Rouye could have said something similar because he was also aware, obviously, of, of quantum I mean, mechanics. This was my jump off from not exact. I forget the terminology from what they said, so we can table that, I suppose. I do think that that's as Delis says. You always start in the middle, right? You start <laughs> in the middle. You, you're, right. uh, you're, yeah, you're, good point. Everything grows from the middle, like grass. Yeah, because yeah, we're always situated within a state of affairs within history, within motion, which Leotard says here in the book. Yeah, I mean, there is this disjunction between narrative knowledge and scientific knowledge, scientific language game and the narrative language game. And um, this leads to paradox. But instead of trying to resolve it and to erase it and to believe that there is a kind of Munchausen self-bootstrapping of science by itself, you know, Leotard calls to kind of like sit with the paradox, to sit with it and to accept little narratives rather than hubristically calling for these grand, these resurrection of grand meta narratives, like in a grand unified theory. although. I'm not sure how prevalent that would have been during Leotard's time, but it, it fits very well in this, in this text, I think, with this text. I think that's also why Leotard calls for dissension, dissension 
rather than consensus. In his view of language games, language games are always agonistic. As I said, you don't have to play to always win, but the way that he's thinking about these things, it, it is adversarial. The adversary, I mean, with when we talked about the mode of, of cycling through language games with friends, the adversary could be boredom or indifference or that which would threaten the intensification and endurance of the social bond between friends, which could be conventional language, but could also be a play on conventional language, right? Conventional language could be an, an accessory to the puns, right? And stuff like that. But in any case, you know, like... Oh, uh, right, yeah, because like you were saying, there's a, right, there's going to be this other, this other language game. The regular language game is what makes possible the puns in a sense, right? Right, the conventional language, it would be kind of a, it would kind of be the, the butt of the joke, but also the, the means by which the joke has, right. yeah, has exactly. forced. And so again, it undermines its own itself, right? Like its negation is within itself. Within yeah, its process. It, yeah, I mean, and, and so for Leotard, language games are always agonistic, but they're also the minimum required for, for society to exist. It's the minimum social bond, so to speak. And I think that um, this is one of the things where there is a kind of ethics of language games deep down in Leotard's idea of promoting dissensus through, through agonistics. And there's almost this like weird nostalgic fantasy whereby there would have been a unifying language game in the past that a community could have coalesced around to to unify the values of truth um national solidity a pre-given finality all of these things that could be rationally reached through discussion and consensus and i think leotard thinks that that's just a that's just a kind of that's the nostalgia for a bygone era that actually never existed. And it implies at the end of the day, if that is the me if that is the goal to attain and the means to reach it are, are any and all, then terror is the best and most efficient way to reach that destination. You know, I think that Leotard is, this is why he, he thinks the census is, not a bad thing, not a negative. There is a kind of affirmation of a kind of discordance. Yeah. Of the, you know, it's what Deleuze talks about with the discordant accord of the faculties or something like this, right? There, there's necessarily a kind of violence to thinking. And in the Leotarian sense, it might be the violence to thinking might be done in the advent of new moves in a language game or the rearrangement of the rules in a language game that might seem like a violence to the conventional mode of thinking within that language game right that might seem like a violence to the players and i think that leotar is kind of calling for us to be wary of our comfortability in a certain congealed formation of discourse that might make us have this knee-jerk Zimmelweis reflex, right, to a new move that is reactionary at the very least, I think, for Leotard. So this is why he, like, attacks information theory or cybernetic theory, because it has a kind of naive view of society that would, that misses what he calls the agonistic aspect. When everything is kind of reduced to the transmission of information or to a kind of Communication without persuasion, without seduction, 
that everything is reached through discussion rationally. Like all of this is this weird fantasy of an enlightenment that really has always been a kind of idealization. We see that in Dune, the way that Herbert kind of undermines the whole kind of the enlightenment ideal of perfect knowledge of the future, perfect knowledge of the past, perfect being able to see the future, et cetera, right? Like these are the things that we, these narratives we believed would lead to some type of utopian society. But again, what does it lead to authoritarian death and destruction and oh yeah i just had to get my dune in there real no quick. <laughs> i i totally agree i totally agree this did actually make me think that frank herbert was way ahead of the game as far as deconstructing this not only like the hero's journey itself but the kind of basic premises of modernity and the enlightenment with regard to i don't even know if he necessarily set out to do that per se but it's a right he didn't have to right like desire sort of drove the the bus there what is the last words of this book since you said that? This sketches the outline of a politics that will respect both the desire for the justice and the desire for the unknown. Right, yeah. So he ends the book with these two desires, desire for justice and desire for the unknown. That's a good point about the consequence of dissensus, uh, at least in the scientific discourse, which is the main focus point of this book, insofar as it's a report on knowledge, right, Is is that science is not about necessarily making the unknown known but the other way around right opening up what sort of the fringes the limits of knowledge itself if you will right yeah and, and opening That's on good. to the unknown i think this is why he go he turns to girdle and showing how even in these simple quote-unquote arithmetical systems incompleteness is a fantasy right yeah exactly that this can be that we, one can infer from this implications for all modes of knowledge, all of the sciences, and and that that should not be seen as a defect, right? Of as though a divine understanding would like Laplace's demon, right? Which he, I think, which convincingly, I was going to say was like Maudib almost. Is right like 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 like, like this like exactly as though again i think a divine understanding would be quizat's hadarak being able to sort of see past and the future in all of its possible states and possible iterations right yeah, right, yeah exactly I, yeah totally I, uh. <laughs> I i do think that that is a kind of fantasy that isn't about limits it's almost i mean like I don't know when I put this in a Kantian way, but it's like it's not necessarily limits of the understanding, but limits in the thing in itself, limits in the noumenon, not or of the noumenon and not of. Um... Now I'm starting to like question how Kant might frame it, and so I shouldn't even worry about it. But I guess that's the point, right? Is this census is to be cultivated in so far, not just for its own sake. In the same way that consensus for its own sake in the in the ideal of communicative rationality is to be considered terror. So dissensus in, in, in its own stake would would be, you know, just mere anarchy or contrarianism. Right. Right. I don't exactly. think that's what Le I don't think that's what Leotard means. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not about a contrarianism. You know, it is about a um, about a, a vigilance of falling prey to a kind of conformity. 
it's a similar type of ethic in um anti-oedipus right not to become enamored with power i mean there's this way in which there is a power in riding the waves of consensus in the scientific community whether it be in funding from grants or commodifying one's research one can multiply the examples and think about it but if we even just like go to pure disinterested research which is always never fully disinterested but you know one can think of the ways in which prejudices of all stripes be they philosophical or ethical or political can contaminate and obstruct the the creativity of science. I mean, I was thinking about this too. I mean, I use the Zimmelweis example because it was so clear in my head. But one can also think about the way in which climate science is in a conundrum, not just, and this is not just a question of credulity or incredulity, but the question of ways in which reliably and justifiably climate science can be shown to have surplus value that can be extracted and, and capitalistic gains and et cetera, et cetera, can justify itself by means of commodification in order to present itself as a viable alternative, how it needs to like take on the guise of like green jobs or something right, like this, yeah. which, are, which are obviously like valuable Cap for trade. the discourse yeah. of the nation state, but not necessarily the discourse on the level at which the seriousness of its of the calamity mm -hmm. impending demands, which is way beyond this question of, you know, how many green jobs can can we get in your district to get right. your vote, Senator, or something <laughs> like this to be able to maybe I'm not articulating this. very No, well. no, I totally it's it's clear. Yeah. I'm, so. I'm the fact that it has to guise itself in the language of capitalistic extraction of surplus value is the only means by which you can take on viability. But at that level and at, at those stakes, it actually kind of does a disservice and perhaps perverts and prevents yeah. the scale and the measures needed, which might and most likely, most definitely would preclude the kind of extraction of surplus value that would deem it a viable oh, project absolutely. and so right. and yeah. so this is this <laughs> is the kind of dialectic that uh, that we've seen for a while now i mean even i mean our whole fucking lives our whole fucking <laughs> literally lives. our whole fucking lives i mean at a certain point God, that's grim in america uh. and we are americans so i'm using this example but when you when you were our young global warming wasn't really a right-wing left-wing thing but now it's kind of more of a it's become tinged i mean we could say that republicans are more opposed to to um climate change or science or the changes required thereof in the sphere of production but you know it really is about the in what ways can if we framed it in leotard's sense it would be there is a equilibrium and a kind of sedimentation of whether it be coal jobs or fossil fuels those industries have a a vested stake in what they will fund including the politicians that can make these policies possible that consensus is in standing in the way of of the radical changes needed right so i guess that's and what is insidious and i guess we'll leave on this bleak note is the is <laughs> the yeah. way in which challenging climate science 
and its validity or denying it or saying God's in control of everything, whatever you want to do can be appropriated by those as a form of dissensus against what you see this language about how there is this, whoa, the consensus of global scientists. Isn't that just the state of opinion? Isn't that just isn't that just another conspiracy theory? Blah, right. blah, blah. You see that kind of language. And so there is an insidiousness <laughs> in appropriating what Leotard is talking about in cultivating the census where it can be turned back. Well, yeah. is it is epistemological it your... nihilism, nihilism, something like that? Yeah, it is a kind of sophistry. And I think Leotard, if he had to respond, would say, well, well, yes, but they are more like the um, and this gets to the different. They are more like the fascists denying the Holocaust because they don't uh, have yeah. to play by the rules. They don't have to play by rules of a language game whereby they're going to verify or promote or prove or argue verifiable evidence. They're not going to play by the language game. They're not doing Herger, yeah, Habermas's game. Yeah, they're well, or they're just not. They're just not. Their language game isn't science at all. Right. Because I don't think Leotard wants anyone to play Habermas's game. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're not. No, to a certain extent, they're playing Habermas's game because they want to say, no, let's keep having a discussion about this until we're all dead. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's that they're not playing. They're not. There is a discrepancy between the language games in, that science is playing and the type of sophistry and rhetoric that they are claiming and they're claiming that science, the science is wrong. And, you know, there is no, I mean, this is also what Sartre says about the, the anti-Semite, right? Like, he doesn't have to play fair. The anti-Semite doesn't have to follow uh, rules of, of argumentation. They don't, have to, they don't have to treat words seriously. You put them in a corner and they just say the time for argument is passed. So there's no differing with, with anti-Semites, just as there's no possible differing between Holocaust deniers or no differing with uh, climate change deniers, right? They, their game is not to reach a state in which there could become a local little narrative, a provisional state of consensus, because I think that's, that's involved too. It's just that consensus to core as a grand meta narrative is what has to be avoided. There is no, I think for them, they aren't obeying any rules of language games they don't have to they're not making moves in any kind of scientific language game at the very least but there's no different to provide a means of accommodating these genres of discourse because there's no as again as Hart might say there's no there's nothing but bad faith on their side and they use that as a weapon and so if, if we get caught up in this notion of rational communication and discussion and think it is about convincing via traditional arguments we're going to lose it's it'd be like feeding trolls right exactly um which we see play out every day yeah a thousand times a fucking day that's what i would say at the end by way of example and by way of just kind of linking this to the different because i do think it, it links up with the different via this question of language games is um it can very easily be weaponized. And I think that that's, that's where Leotard goes with it in order to tackle these famous case cases. And I don't remember their names because I don't, I think they're beneath memory, but you know, <laughs> these, these famous Holocaust deniers and 
I think that there was a movie made of this. Maybe it was just called The Trial or shit. I got to look that fucking thing up. It wasn't a great movie, but it, it did put forth the question at hand of um, Holocaust denier and um, suing. Was it a Stanford, Princeton uh, professor for um, defamation for libel? He wanted to sue her in the UK because they have a much a little bit looser court system when it comes to libel and those kind of things, right? They're, they're a little bit more slanted towards the accuser. In any case, it's David something, right? David, again, I don't remember his name. Sorry, cut this out if you want, but fuck that guy. But anyway, Leotar <laughs> is trying to think philosophically through this question of how could the different provide the means for which a damage and injury done cannot possibly be mediated by any means of, of discourse. In fact, the injury or, or harm done itself would not be, would not exist precisely because there would be no means in which it could evidence itself and testify to itself. Right. So there is this sense in which this question of language games, their non-hierarchy, their non-unity, their non-foundation in any one of them is really drastically important politically, ethically, juridically. Otherwise, one could have, I think, no means for negotiating the types of injuries and harms that would be you know, precluded based on those types of organization if language games weren't heterogeneous heteromorphic if they were all and this again comes back to terror for leotard if you have a kind of totalitarian closed notion of a system of, of language games that have a hierarchy and order etc and they have they are isomorphic this is for him where terror takes form this is the form of terror in in language games Obviously, the extreme limit, he says, is bureaucracy. You can think of the Brazil as a great way of like, and, and obviously Kafka-esque shit. The movie, where, not the country, right? <laughs> right, right. The, the movie, yes. Sorry. I mean, it's, <laughs> they've had Bolsonaro, so you could have thought the country, but yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, the movie, you I mean, like there's a, just a bug in the system causes a whole series of misunderstandings and inability... There is an inability to play by any language game because of the absurdity of the of the accusations and the there's a kind of different incredulity, if you will, towards the bureaucracy. But in any case, like it doesn't take a bureaucracy to to have a, a kind of regimentation of, of rules in language games, as Leotard says. But we can imagine that as as a the bureaucracy as a kind of Kafka-esque parody of of the rules in, in language games, everything in triplicate, TPS reports, shit like that. Any final thoughts, my brother? Deep in the human unconscious is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes sense, but the real universe is always one step beyond logic. It's <laughs> my final thought. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> what about you? We feeling good about? I think so. I know there was a there's, there was a couple more things we could have talked about, you know, like how the inability of science to ground itself, to legitimate itself, 
means that the prescriptive, which wants to found itself on the denotative, the practical wants to ground itself on the scientific in order to ensure good moves in the injustice. But if science can't ground itself, the practical becomes ungrounded itself, blah, 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 right? So this is part of the crisis that it reverberates throughout the different language games. And I think, again, Leotard thinks that that's actually a good thing because those foundations or those self-foundations were, were fantasies at best, terroristic at worst. So they were nightmares or something or hopelessly utopian. I didn't say a ton about the technological discourse of yeah. efficiency and optimization, but I did at the same time when we started talking about surplus value and all of this. Yeah. Where right. It's, yeah, it's exactly. Not, if it doesn't yeah. contribute to this sort of axiom, then it's discarded or not funded. Mm -hmm. There's no positive feedback loop for it to attach itself to. Exactly. So, you know, and I think that Leotard in his, so this would have been three years earlier in the decadence essay, will conflate the scientific discourse as not merely the language game of the denotative, but also the language game of efficiency. I think that he separates them here for matters of clarity. But if we think about it, science straddles both. It isn't just about the adequation of nature to knowledge and truth apart from practical effects. It's always concerned with its research is never pure, right? It's never pure knowledge. We have to be very clear that what he calls the technological regime of the discourse of efficiency and optimization and technocracy, et cetera, et cetera, isn't necessarily separate from what science does. I think that three years earlier, and again, he's not, he wasn't writing to a state then for the Quebecois committee or whatever. Science for Leotard was much more the language game of technology and optimization and efficiency. And in fact, terror. When he looked at the Bader group and how they were put in these isolation chambers, some to the point of death, but they became these guinea pigs, these like dream subjects for human science, because the human sciences have never had a subject, man himself, that could be completely isolated and turned into independent variables, except in these extreme terroristic circumstances. Ironically, the beta group were a terrorist group, but they had terrorism done to them by science. And he says, he has some lines from Quip like, all of this Hitlerian panoply done in a democratic regime by scientists who are isolating and kind of torturing these, these subjects in these sensory deprivation chambers, let's say. So they were completely independent of external stimuli, if you will. They were controlled variables. And that's the, this weird terroristic ideal of, of the human sciences, if you will. Not endemic to all of them, but, but foreign to the heart of them. So I would just say that's, that's a discrepancy I see between the evil period and this period here, where he is distinguishing this discourse of knowledge and science and denotative, and then the technological discourse. Well, science obviously is involved in technology too. So that kind of distinction, I think, I'm not sure if he meant it to be so hard and fast, but I would, I would say that science is never just playing the language game of, of knowledge and the denotative, right? It is also thinking of the optative. Unless we are thinking of knowledge purely as an encyclopedic sedimentation, which I don't think Leotard agrees with. 
because new hypotheses, new theories always resurrect the question of legitimacy of science and its foundations. So, I mean, science can't be just on the side of the denotative. This again shows the interrelation of, of language games and how they can't fully be isolated or unified or centralized or homogenized or isomorphized, blah, blah, blah. That'll wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. We'll see y'all next week. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a clockwork orange.